My guest this episode is Ainsley Vergara, a speech-language pathologist in Athens, Georgia. She was recently appointed clinical assistant professor at the University of Georgia, where she provides clinical instruction and supervision for speech pathology students. With regard to her clinical background, Ainsley has worked in a wide range of settings, including schools, private practice, home health, and a non-profit organization. While working as an SLP in those settings, Ainsley partnered with Northern Arizona University's Institute for Human Development to provide AAC training for clients, their parents, therapists, and special ed teams. She's most energized when teaching others and instilling the value that everyone really does deserve a voice. So greetings, welcome, and thanks for joining me, Ainsley. Thank you so much for having me. And on the note of the NAUIHD, that was so hard to say. I seem to have a knack for working for places that have about 10 words in the name. So I stumble on them myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and for those who are curious listening to this, I had to do my intro at least three times because I was tripping up over the words. But there you go. Uh, Happens to all of us. So, 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 So tell me a little bit about yourself and your AAC journey so far. Okay, so I am a speech pathologist. I graduated with my master's in 2017, so I'm actually just now starting on my sixth uh, school year. And when I went into grad school, I thought I'm going to work with pediatric speech therapy, either in a clinic or in a school. Um, I didn't really know what my area of focus might be. And I tell people I really fell into AAC during grad school. We were assigned clients at our on-campus clinic, and I somehow kept getting all of the AAC clients. And I was telling one of my professors, I'm not sure who made this choice, but someone has decided that this is my path, and I don't know how I feel about that yet. (laughs) So I grew to love it. Clearly, I'm here today. What I really found that was inspiring is that I was able to work with people that sometimes other clinicians didn't have the confidence to work with, or maybe they didn't have the support. And I was in grad school, so I had the support of research faculty and clinic faculty and other peers who were learning about speech and language at the same time Mm -hmm. at my disposal while learning to work with AAC. So that was really helpful, and it wasn't really my choice, but then I ended up loving it. And then to give you a little more understanding of how I came to be where I am now, my husband and I moved to Arizona from Georgia right after grad school, and I could not find the dream job I was looking for with pediatrics in a school. And I ended up in a high school, which I never thought I would work in a high school. And I had a caseload of 107 students, which is, (laughs) looking back, absolutely wild. And over 30 of my students were minimally verbal or non-speaking. And several of them already had AAC devices, but others didn't. And I made it my personal mission to find some way for these people to communicate. And every night I was researching, I was trying to figure out something to do for these people. And in Arizona, there's a program through the state's Medicaid agency to actually get devices into people's hands through a pretty... um, rigorous process but the cool thing is it becomes their personal device and isn't owned by by the school district so i ended up partnering with that agency and then i was able to help get devices for some of these students and 
through a long chain of events, I ended up working for NAU, which is that Northern Arizona University Institute for Human Development, and actually providing those uh, device trainings and evaluations for those families. So I did not ever, that was never my goal to end up in that role. But once I landed there, I fell in love. And since then, I have moved back to Georgia and I actually still work for NAU part-time to provide trainings via teletherapy. So it's a long drawn out thing, but I I never meant to land here, but I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> and as this is the Minspeak Moments podcast, uh, tell, us, tell me a little bit about your first introduction to Minspeak as a paradigm. So some of my students did use Lamp Words for Life and Unity vocabulary systems in that first year that I was drowning and trying to find ways to get my students communicating. But I wouldn't say that I truly understood the depth of the system or the language until, I'm going to sound like a teacher's pet here, until I went to the Pittsburgh AAC language uh, seminar. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so... There, I was able to meet Bruce Baker and Tracy Kovac and Deb Witkowski and be surrounded by people who cared as much as I did about AAC. And I was able to really learn about the motor planning aspect and how the vocabulary system was designed. And I came back on cloud nine and I was so excited. And my poor husband had to listen to me talk about it forever because the whole series was an aha moment. Every new piece of information was something that excited me just a little bit more than the one before. And then what I also loved about that was when I came back to the families that I was working with, I was able to talk about that conference and show, first of all, I truly value evidence-based practice and continuing education, but also I can take this information and teach you about it and help you understand why the system is designed the way it is. And I know that sometimes, you know, folks leave the webinar as it is now, but the seminar as it was. And what they also find is that the things they learn are not just about MinSpeak, but they also take away a lot of stuff that they can apply um, with, and I will say this, you know, with with other systems and other devices, because they pick up a lot about the notion of language and AAC in general. Absolutely. A lot of information about implementation was extremely helpful from the conference I attended, or the seminar I attended, and Gloria Soto was there. So I was working in Phoenix, Arizona, and the majority of my caseload, either the clients spoke Spanish and English or their parents might have only spoken Spanish. So to be able to learn underneath her about Unidad was incredible. So I was able to use that information even with clients who used other devices as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what are your current areas of interest? What are the things that are, to use the phrase, floating your boat um, mm-hmm. at this moment in time? That's such a hard question because I think I'm always interested in everything. <laughs> I just want to learn everything there is to know about everything. But if I have to sum it up, obviously AAC is important to me. I would say the thing that's most important right now is family-centered intervention. What can I do to pull the family or caregivers in to best support the client? And then reducing device abandonment. How can I make this important enough to you and whoever is around you that you will not stop using it unless there's something better that comes along? And then because of my new appointment, graduate clinician education, making sure that we are preparing the next generation of SLPs to be the best that they can. 
we'll probably come back to a few of those as we go along. But uh, let's start by just taking a little look at when you began your career. We're still looking at your history here. Uh, thinking back to when you started, is there anything that you wish you'd have known then that you know now? So much. Uh, <laughs> the One of the biggest things is I wish I had realized how important it is to help our clients outside of the therapy room or our students. So like I said, I began my career in Arizona after having lived in Georgia for my whole life. So you're adding a new state and clinician responsibilities and administrative paperwork. And it just took me a long time to figure out that sometimes the way I could be the best or provide the best service to a family is through extra stuff. And that stuff is where the magic happens and how families learn that we're really on their side. So that might look like helping families navigate assistive technology funding, like grants and scholarships, or connecting them with professional contacts like device reps in their area, or giving them access to websites that have some easily digestible AAC information. And then specifically within Arizona, it took me until my second year to realize that there were some really cool community activities that were inclusive and would be really great social outings for my clients so they could practice the skills we were working on within the therapy room. So I wish I had known that the best way to be an SLP is to promote generalization and what that looks like. So now I kind of sprinkle in these little tidbits at the end of a session as I notice that families are ready for new information. Mm -hmm. uh, so really just to sum it up, I wish I had known that I could make families' lives easier outside of speech sessions and that I could gain their buy-in and a deeper insight to what makes them tick if I had really had these resources ready to give them. And, you know, building on that in terms of, you know, your your interest now on certainly that idea of uh, training and empowering, you know, the family, what sort of things have you found that have been helpful in developing and empowering folks that you'd like to share with people who are listening. If they wanted to be successful in the same way you are, what are the sort of things, what sort of ideas do you have for them that they could use? So I kind of fall back on the word counseling, and I'm not sure it's the best way to capture what I'm talking about, but understanding that these families are people who have a lot more going on than what we might see in the one or two hours we see them each week. So really thinking about how can I reduce the stress that you have going through the week instead of adding to it. So for me, sometimes that looks like homework being, okay, here's three words I want you to model throughout this week. Mm -hmm. Model them in whatever situation you can. Here, here's three sticky notes, put them on your fridge or put them on the mirror so that you remember to model them. But I'm not asking them to do some in-depth activity. I'm just meeting them where they are, reducing the demand and showing them that, hey, this this can be pretty easy if we let it be. So I, I counsel them and, you know, this is hard. And I say this is hard for families who maybe their kid's not communicating in the way that you expected them to. Or maybe things look really differently from what you expected when you brought this child into your home. Uh, I am here to support you in whatever that looks like, in whatever way I can to help the whole family communicate together. So I, I just try to be very transparent and acknowledge that things are hard and then say, you know, what do you want to do with that information and how can I support you in this situation? And 
thinking a little bit about the other area that you, you mentioned earlier, which is device abandonment. Um, I'm guessing here that by focusing on this approach, as you say, of counseling, whether it's the right word or not, but I'm, I'm thinking here that this probably goes towards helping to um, address that issue of abandonment. Right. One of the key reasons for abandonment anecdotally for me would be that my clients see the device as work and not as something that helps them. So sometimes the buy-in does start at the family level or with the special ed team or other uh, therapists or whoever is working with the child or client. Sometimes we have to get that buy-in before we can ever get the device user to buy in. And once we show that, hey, this isn't just for work, you can actually tell me the things that I don't understand from the way your body's moving or the way you're looking at me. When you use this device, it's so much easier for me to understand what you need or what you want right now or what you're thinking. So I am a big proponent of making therapy sessions as fun and as functional as possible and moving away from making it feel just like another hour of school or another hour of therapy to try to push towards reducing that device abandonment. It's like the old adage, you know, if you enjoy what you're doing, you never work a day in your life. And I'm guessing we can say the same thing for our clients who are using technology that what you're suggesting there sounds to me like if you don't see it as work, if it is something that is somewhat enjoyable, you're just going to do it because you want to do it, not because you have to do it. Absolutely. The third thing you, you mentioned that you were focusing on here was the uh, graduate clinical education. Um, again, what sort of things are you doing in your uh, role as an educator that you'd also like to share with folks out there who are listening? So my primary role right now is supervising my graduate students within sessions. And the way that I have done it is through more of an apprenticeship model. So in the very beginning of their clinical experience, I conduct the session and they watch. Then the next session, I pull back a little bit and they're able to lead some of the activities and I contribute as needed. And then the next session, I expect them to lead and then I provide feedback. And we keep moving through that model until they're more independent because I find that what's missing in a lot of speech therapists or really anyone who's working with someone who has complex needs, a lot of times it's confidence. So what I'm focused on right now is building confidence through kind of that I do, we do, you do model, but a little more complex than that. And then on top of that, working with them on soft skills, we talk specifically about family counseling and how to try to put ourselves in the shoes of the families we're working with so we can understand that you know, sometimes it might seem like we're giving them such an easy home assignment and they just don't do it. And we can become really frustrated if we don't find a way to think through what what does the rest of their week look like? Maybe maybe this is something they can't handle right now because other things are feeling a little heavy. So how can we be a support instead of adding a more stress to their plate? Now, taking into account what you just said here about um, suggesting ways in which people can improve their performance. And you, you said earlier, evidence-based practice is, is always a good thing to, to go for. I'm going to ask you the probably the toughest question here, which is basically to think about so far 
if you have any memorable failures, right? it always seems a little hard to say to people, what's your memorable failure? But I think it's always helpful when people can hear that somebody who appears to be very experienced, like yourself, who's done all this good stuff, but we all make mistakes. And are there any mistakes you can remember from which you learned something? I have plenty of those. I'll talk about two of them. One of them is just in my second year, as I became more comfortable with AAC and I started building my community of other SLPs and other professionals who were strong in AAC, I started looking back at the IEP goals that I wrote in my first year for people who used devices or low-tech AAC, and I was just embarrassed that I wrote some of those, and I could not believe you know, how I wrote them. They were measurable, I guess, but a lot of the people that I was working with, I was giving very similar goals, even though they might have very different needs. And I I learned from that, that having a lot of different resources to pull from to understand your client's needs and what they should work on, and even how to word those AAC goals is really powerful. And my team that I worked with was very patient. They understood it was my first year and we were able to work on a lot of skills outside of those goals. But I just learned that you know, we all have to start somewhere. <laughs> and as embarrassing as it was, I have worked really hard on making improvements in that specific area since then. Did you have a second one you wanted to mention? Yeah. So um, we've mentioned a few times that I worked as an AAC trainer and I still do. When I lived in Arizona, I would travel all around the valley. So Phoenix and surrounding areas, sometimes 500 miles a week to work with a variety of teams. Oh, wow. And so I was on the road a lot. I was training a lot. I was feeling pretty good about my trainings. But then one day I was driving to a school to provide training on a device that a child was using, like Words for Life. And it was also the week that I decided to give up caffeine. And so <laughs> I will just say my mental clarity was lacking. <laughs> And um, I didn't bring my personal device that I would use as a backup sometimes if something was going on with the client's device. And the child had already left school because he was sick and he took his device with him, which I was really glad that he took his voice with him. That was wonderful. But I had nothing. And I had already driven an hour to the school and they expected to learn about lamp words for life. So I am battling a crazy headache from lack of caffeine, <laughs> reduced mental clarity, and I have no materials. And so I was like, I, I already drove here. All of these people are in this room looking at me waiting. And so I frantically thought about what I could do and ding, 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 thought about my, I can borrow a laptop. And I downloaded PRC Pass, and I was able to demonstrate some of the patterns and talk about the language system. <laughs> and it ended up being okay. But I was pretty red in the face and <laughs> out of breath as I was describing everything. And I, it was just further confirmation that, you know, sometimes things don't go as planned. But it also reminded me that the AAC world actually has so many resources out there. And so since then, I've made an Excel sheet that's cloud-based so I can access it from my phone and has links to AAC therapy resources, training resources, funding, evaluation, and more. So I have this backup for when my brain is not moving at full speed. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, not only do you have a backup plans, it looks like you have some prescience as well, because it looks like you were looking at my next question on my list here, which is, what are the, some, of, some of the best resources that you've found that have helped you along the way? And you just mentioned you have an Excel spreadsheet. For <laughs> them, but what are some of the resources you suggest that people should take a look into maybe to help them? So I, I do have a ton on that sheet. As far as what helped me the most, the resource that I used in my first few years in Arizona, there is an assistive tech loan library where I would check out devices or iPads with apps. And then a lot of different device manufacturers also have either free or reduced cost apps for SLPs to use. So just playing around with the different language systems, the different apps, things like that was really helpful. I always tell people I used to, here's bring up my husband again, I used to annoy him by just speaking to him with multiple devices at one time to practice finding the <laughs> vocabulary. And so that was my most useful resource. And I know that a lot of states have some sort of assistive tech loan library, or if you're outside of the US, I would just recommend seeing if there's anything near you that's accessible to get your hands on the devices. And then for absolutely free resources, practicalaac.com, which Practical has AAC written into it, is my go-to resource because I really feel like every AAC resource that has ever been created is linked somewhere on that website. Right, yeah. I share it with other professionals, but also parents, because I think that the way the articles are written are very straightforward. They're short enough that you don't get lost in them. So... That website is a go-to for implementation and really anything AAC. And then as a clinician, thinking about that failure of my objectives in my first year, I love the dynamic AAC goals grid too. And you can Google DAG2, D-A-G-G2. It's really helpful for guiding me through just assessing where my students or my clients are in terms of linguistic, operational, strategic, and social competencies. I think a lot of SLPs get stuck on only working on linguistic competencies, but in order for our users to be effective and efficient users, they really need to learn how to navigate their personal devices operations and think through the social uh, aspects of language. So the DAG too is really helpful in moving away from requesting goals and using AAC for well-rounded communication. Perfect, perfect. A lot of uh, good practical advice there. And I think you just reminded me when you mentioned practical AAC that I really have to get Carol Zangari's name on my list of folks <laughs> uh -huh. to, uh, to, to, to drag around and uh, answer some questions. But uh, yeah, that is a great resource. Uh, I, I'm the same as you. I do like to dip into that one as well. So I'm glad you were able to remind us all of that one now. Next question here. Uh, can you think of three people who have been very influential in your development as a clinician? Sure. So thinking back again to how I fell into AAC, one of my first clients in grad school was a young woman with Friedrich's ataxia. And I was able to work with my clinical professor to go through the evaluation process to trial and then ultimately select a, an AAC device for her. We did go with an eye gaze device because she was progressively losing some of her motor abilities. 
And she really left a mark on me. Uh, she had two master's degrees and a PhD. And her Friedrich's ataxia led to increasingly reduced speech intelligibility. So by the time she came to us, she was desperate to find a solution to allow her to keep teaching and talking. And it was at that point that I really understood the magnitude of our profession and that assistive technology can change lives. And I still think about her, you know, with HIPAA, I, there's no way for me to find her and see how things are going. But Oh, yeah. it was a transformative experience to work with her and see how we can help her communicate, which is such an important aspect of life, especially for someone who enjoys teaching. And then uh, next will be Gail Van Tatenhove. I've listened to all the other speakers on this podcast, and unlike them, I have not met her. But I do use her resources all the time. It's really helpful to know some of those AAC giants' names, and that's that's what I call them, so that I can quickly find information that I can trust. My first ever client who was using auditory scanning, I really hadn't worked with anyone independently outside of grad school at that point who had such a complex body, and I was able to use her information and bring her research-based materials to my first therapy session and actually share with the family why I was doing what I was doing. And I felt a lot more confident because I was able to bring in resources that she has cultivated over so long. So she is absolutely an inspiration to me and hopefully I'll meet her soon. And then maybe an unexpected answer for my final one would be my daughter. So having my own child has really pushed my empathy to a whole new level. I have always valued family-centered intervention, but having my own child and realizing all of the responsibilities that parents have has given me so much more patience and understanding than I ever had before. So I kind of talked earlier about how I try to simplify homework and things like that because I realized that what I see in a session is just the tip of the iceberg for that family and the rest of their week might be riddled with doctor's appointments or IEP meetings or ISP meetings, you name it. And I really, really want to work to help them just incorporate strategies instead of adding what feels like a lot more stress to them. So my daughter has been <laughs> so instrumental in helping me become a better clinician. I'm with you there. I think uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash were the ones who sang teach your children well, but I think it works the other way quite well as well, which is your teach uh, your children teach you. And um, developing the skills to, to handle your own kids, I'm sure certainly helps handle uh, other clients as well. Mm -hmm. So you've now got an opportunity to debunk any AAC myth that you like. So there are a lot of myths out there about AAC, and we all have our pet peeves, but um, which myth would you like to have a go at debunking? I am ready for this one. So I'm sure <laughs> most of our listeners have heard this on repeat, but AAC does not prohibit verbal speech. So I, on a personal note, I've taught my daughter, she's 18 months, I've taught her to use sign language since, you know, we really started showing her at around six months. And by eight months, she had a few signs and she signed more than she spoke because that's what worked for her. And my own grandma said, 
don't you think that teaching her that hand language is going to make her not use mouth language? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And that phrase has really stuck with me. And it also just is an example of the kinds of things I hear from families for whom we're recommending AAC, because as you know, sign language is also a different form of language. So I was quick to tell her, no, actually research supports that AAC does not inhibit speech production and it might actually support speech production. And it's something I share with families all the time. And I mean, now my daughter's 18 months and she's speaking well over 100 words. So the hand language did not stop the mouth language. (laughs) (laughs) And she still uses sign language and it works for her to do both. And I am able now to kind of call on that when I talk to parents and tell them just because they're using a device doesn't mean that they won't speak. They might use both. And I emphasize the fact that We all are going to use the thing that's easiest for us. So if it's easier to use a device to get a message across, someone will do that. But if it's easier to speak it or gesture it or use facial expressions to communicate the same message, that's what people are going to do. So this is something I feel really strongly about and research supports. And then anecdotally as well, I've had some clients who started to speak more because that stress of creating a message was reduced. And they also had an on-demand speech model for whatever message they wanted to convey. So it's something I will just continue to tell everybody about. And I will tell my grad students to tell everybody about because it's something I feel extremely strongly about. (laughs) Yeah, you and many others. And it does us no harm to keep reminding people of this one because, as you say, it's, it's still there and it's been there forever and ever and ever. And... We have to keep reminding folks over and over again that that the evidence does not support the notion that you're going to um, stop using the mouth language. (laughs) Yes. Okay, let's just move on now to my little slot here that I call the three C's when I ask folks to give recommendations related to the three C's of culture, courses, and clinical practice. So let's start with culture and uh, can you recommend uh, a book, an album, or a movie, or something of you know cultural interest to to folks who are listening? And and why do you recommend that? So to be very honest, I used to read a lot, but now with a one year old, my main reads are things like Llama Llama Red Pajama <laughs> and Old Hat New Hat. So if anyone wants to hear a dramatic rendition of a crying baby llama, I do that pretty well, and I do that around <laughs> eight o'clock every night. (laughs) It's been a few years since I've just sat and read a personal, you know, read myself. But one that I read a few years ago that helped push me in terms of neurodiversity was Look Me in the Eyes, My Life with Asperger's by John Elder Robeson. And it's a memoir detailing his life as someone who did not receive a diagnosis until adulthood. And it, it can get pretty dark, but it's also funny. And I thought it was a really well-written insight into life with a different brain. And the author says it's a better brain. So <laughs> that was a book I really enjoyed. And I plan to read again soon because it's not too long. So remind me again of the title and the author. Look Me in the Eyes, My Life with Asperger's. And the author is John Elder Robeson. Okay. It's one of the few books that on my Goodreads I rated with five stars. So oh, there we go. I really, really liked it. Excellent. Excellent. So that's a bit of culture. 
Um, how about a course or maybe even a conference that uh, you recommend that people take part in? So I'll sound like a teacher's pet, but the Pittsburgh ACM Language Sem- Seminar Series, which is now the webinar, really was amazing. I was able to meet Bruce Baker, which was life-changing, truly, to meet the person whose brain is phenomenal and was able to come up with so much of what we use now with Men Speak. And then I was also surrounded by other people who cared as much as I do about AAC. If you can attend anything like that, it, it was incredible. As far as free things go, I've really been into SLP Nerdcast. So it's a series of podcasts where these two SLPs invite experts of different areas to come in and talk about their specialty area. And they have a lot of podcasts about AAC implementation or literacy with AAC and teletherapy and just other broad topics that are really useful for SLPs. So I can listen to these when I'm driving since having a little one makes it hard to sit down for a long course sometimes. And then you can even pay for a membership to get CEUs, or you can just listen to the podcast for free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you can guess, I'm a big fan of podcasts. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't tell. Yeah, yeah, but but I think you're right. You know, for me, I listen to podcasts as I'm driving. I, I stack them up, and then as I'm going to and from work, I, I listen to them. I find that uh, it, it's a good way to spend my time. I really do enjoy being able to use that time, you know, to to reflect maybe on the topics that I haven't had a lot of time to read about lately. And what I love about this specific set of podcasts is it is a different speaker all the time. So you might find a new person who then you can go read more about their research or their information. So it's a nice little door open into a whole bunch of other information. And then finally here with uh, my three C's, the clinical Uh, Do you have any tips that you would like to give to people to encourage best practice in AAC? Yeah. So one thing I tell my students all the time, my grad students, is to always ask device users if you can touch their device before modeling on it. Just like we don't want people touching us without asking, we should view their devices as extensions of themselves. Mm. So that's something I always tell my students. Just (laughs) it comes down to respect you know, respect your clients and ask if it's okay. And then um, another tip is to just get in there and try. AAC is overwhelming because learning a new language is uncomfortable for everyone. But I find it really powerful to show my clients or the caregivers of my clients that sometimes this is really hard for me too, but I'm still trying. And that gets that gets me a lot of buy-in because I'm showing that This isn't easy for me either always. And if I can keep on pushing because I think it's really important for your kid to try this, then I see that parents are a little more willing to as well. And then finally, this was spoken about in a recent episode of this podcast. Remember that AAC is a tool. We can't just give a client a device and expect them to just start using it because it is a new language. We have to remember all of our speech therapy principles and actually teach them the language. So remember that it is a new language for our clients and that the device is a tool that we must teach. Yep, and that's a good one. I always tell people that I have a a toolbox at home, but it doesn't mean I can build a house. Um, And, you know, having the tools are one thing, 
using them correctly is 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 the next bit. So that's that's a really good tip, I think, for people. I love that, and I'm stealing that phrase from you. <laughs> uh, okay, so maybe in a sentence or two, what would you like people to take away from what you said today? I think for me, my main point would be that effective implementation of AAC requires teamwork. So regardless of who you are on a child's or client's team, consider the other team members and see if you can think of ways to support them in order to support the client. Okay, cool. And finally, uh, if people want to contact you with any comments or questions, what's the best way to do that? If people have questions or comments, you can reach out to my email address, which is a Vergara, V-E-R-G-A-R-A, at U-G-A dot E-D-U. Okay. And I will make sure to put that in the show notes as well. So if people go to the website, they can see that as well. Perfect. Thank you. Well, thanks ever so much, Aisley Vergara. Speech pathologist in Athens, Georgia. Great to talk to you. And I should say, um, as we get closer to ATIA, uh, I'll try and remember to send you an email. And uh, you can say hello to Gail, because Gail is always at ATIA. Perfect. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. It really is an honor. Thanks a lot. And you take care.